How are you this morning? Everybody good? Yeah, I'm seeing a little finals fatigue on some faces here. Hopefully uh, the, the sermon won't put you to sleep. Um, try, to, try to keep it lively, okay? How's that sound? Hey, go ahead and if you would, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 31 this morning. Okay, it's Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. It's page 846 in the Bibles that are there in the chairs. Uh, hope you read along with me. And while you're turning there, let me ask you this question. Have you ever heard of that slogan that status is everything? You heard it? Status is everything. Without status, you can't succeed. Without status, you can't advance. Without status, you can never achieve your dreams, your hopes, your expectations. None of that will will happen. Status is everything, right? Sociologists and cultural anthropologists, they've identified two different types of status that you can have. The first is ascribed status. And ascribed status is the kind of status that you were born into, right? So... Your sex, whether you're male or female, uh, your race, what color of skin you are, like how wealthy your family was, all of that, you didn't earn it, you know, you didn't achieve it, it was just kind of there, that is ascribed status. The other type of status that that they identify is achieved status, and that's that's where you use your your talents, your God-given abilities, whatever they are, your knowledge, and you work hard, you persevere, and you accomplish something. You move ahead just out of sheer elbow grease, sweat of the brow, hard work, right? Using those things that God has given you to advance yourself. And though culture may vary from one to the next as far as what is really important, what you see is that personal advancement is based upon one of two things. It's based upon what you're born into, those, those gifts and abilities you naturally possess, and what you do with them, how you make them work for your own advantage. Everything boils down to the resources that you have been given and your own effort, your own works, right? So is it any surprise then that we often find our identity, we find our hope, we find our satisfaction in those things that help us to achieve our desired status? Whatever that thing is that you're good at, whatever that thing is you desire most or that you've been born into, you kind, of, you kind of take those things on and they become your own. You want to identify yourselves with those. It could be wealth or comfort or security. It could be your skills. It could be your talents. It, it could be successes or achievements. It could be your effort, ingenuity, or just plain old hard work. You take pride in the fact that you work hard, Right? We find something that defines us, something that gives us significance, and we begin to identify ourselves with that thing. That becomes who we are, right? But what happens if your desired goal, your desired goals maybe, are in conflict with your ascribed or achieved status? What if you do, what do you do when they're not compatible? This morning we are going to look at a situation in the life of Jesus where a young man, a young, rich young ruler comes head to head with that very issue. I mean, he has it all. But yet his desired goal and his achieved and ascribed statuses, they just don't match. And so we'll look at this, the response of this wealthy young man. We'll look at Jesus' disciples and how they react and then the words of Jesus. And when we do, we'll see that wealth power and personal achievement and hard work cannot buy eternal life. 
It can be received only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So please turn with me, if you haven't already, to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. As Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asked him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and he said to the disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And and the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, Well, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now this is a longer passage, and so I thought what would be best as we looked at this would be to look at at just different people coming into play. So we'll look first at the rich young man, and then we'll look at Peter and the response of the disciples, and then we'll focus our, our attention on Jesus' words. And when we do that, what we will see is that you should not trust in earthly possessions, nor in the act of giving them up, But instead, you must receive Christ as your possession. So first, do not trust in earthly possessions. And again, we see this in the rich young ruler. Now again, a bit of context. We have to remember that this passage picks up as Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. They're on their way to the cross. And as they're going, Jesus is focusing his attention, his efforts on the disciples, teaching them about what it's going to mean if you are to follow Christ. If you are going to be my disciple, if you're to come after me, this is what it looks like. And we've already seen from from the context so far that, that a disciple of Christ is dependent upon prayer. They humbly serve all without partiality. They Christians must pursue unity with one another, unity that's based around the truth, but unity with one another. They must deal seriously with their sin. Followers of Christ must pursue the covenant of marriage and not look at divorce as an option. They need to be careful not to neglect the insignificant, but instead love them and lead them to Christ. And they, we saw that specifically in terms of children. And today, 
we're going to see that following Christ has an impact also on all that you possess. It all belongs to Him. To follow Christ, Jesus teaches that He must have claim over every aspect of your life. Every aspect. Not some, not parts, but all. I mean, you name it, it belongs to Him. It's to be used for His purpose, for His glory. Now, if we're honest... And let's be honest, let's be real. This is shocking to us. The idea that everything matters to Jesus, that every part of your life belongs to Him, that is shocking to us. But you know what? We're in good company. Because the disciples, that's the response over and over and over and over and over again. They just don't get it. They keep struggling with this. Okay? So, but to receive His kingdom means that you must lay yours down. All right, in verse 17, we see that as Jesus was setting out on his journey, this man runs up and he kneels down before him and he asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We learn from verse 22 that this man had great possessions, that he is very wealthy. Luke adds in his account in Luke 18.18 that this man was a young ruler. So this guy has it all. Celebrity of the day, folks. I mean, you name it. He's got money. He's got power. He's, he's young. He's got the whole world at his feet, right? And what does he do, right? He runs up to Jesus, and he kneels down before him, and he begs Jesus to answer a question. How often do you see rich, young, powerful people doing something like this? Never. It was that way in Jesus' day, too. That just, that just doesn't happen. And so you're seeing this earnestness, you're seeing this hunger, you're seeing this passion in him. I mean, this guy, he runs up and he bows before Jesus. I mean, look at his earnestness, look at his urgency, look at his fervor, look at his humility. He runs up to Jesus and he calls him good teacher. And then he asks him the most important question for all mankind. The most essential question that you can ever have, this man poses. Right? He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's something in him that hungered to know the answer to this question. He was plagued by it. He had to know. Now, some people might be saying, well, that's just because of his religious upbringing, right? He, he was taught that there was a, a God who created all things. This God was perfectly good, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. But mankind rebelled against him, sinned against him, denied him, tried to live life without him. They end up falling into sin, right? And so they're separated from God. And ever since then, mankind has been trying to grapple, trying to, to reach out to find God in any ways necessary. And that's what you see happening in religions throughout the world, right? Because the people are just grasping in the dark, trying to find God, and He's not there. That's what some people would say. But we know better because God has given us His Word, and God continually reaches out and draws out to us. Right? We're not reaching for Him. He's reaching for us. <clears throat> but listen, how often does teaching stories actually elicit some kind of response like this man has? Okay? How many of you get really motivated when you're sitting in class, when your teacher's lecturing you? 
Or how many of you, when you were a kid, listening to your mother tell bedtime stories, just got all inflamed and, and felt a sense of urgency, right? You, you don't. Something has to happen inside you to kind of elicit this type of response. That this man wants something. He's hungry for it. He's willing to make a fool of himself to get it. There's something going on there, right? There's a work being done inside him. There's, there's more to it than that. You can't create that kind of deep longing for eternal life just by telling a story. So something's at work that's, that's, he's willing to play the fool, even though he's wealthy, even though he's powerful, even though he, he has status. He wanted to inherit eternal life. Friends, the greatest need that you and I have is eternal life. That's what we need more than anything. Well, what is it? Right? We, we have to look. We have to define it. What is eternal life? Well, according to, to Jesus' description, we see in verse 21, it's treasure in heaven. In verses 23 through 24, he calls it the kingdom of God. In verse 26, you can tell by the disciples' question that it is salvation. Who then can be saved? And so what we see is that to receive eternal life is to have the treasure of a perfectly restored relationship with God in His heavenly kingdom. That is eternal life. This is why you were created. You were created to dwell eternally with God. You ever think about that while you're here? Why you live this life that you have? Did you ever realize the fact that this life, the reason why you're here, is to be able to seek the next one? To be able to answer the questions that lead you to the next one. That your life here and now is not meant to be building temporary, perishable kingdoms for yourself. Fulfilling your desires that, that really are insatiable and can't satisfy. But are you really here to prepare you for the next one? Friends, that's why you're here. You created for something more. This life that you have been given now is not to be spent on cheap, unsatisfying desires, but to seek the one, the only one who can truly satisfy the deep longings of your soul. Now, so far, i got to admit, I really, really like this guy. I mean, let's face it. This guy has everything going for him, but he's hungry, he's earnest, he's running after Jesus. He asked the single most important question that you and I could possibly have. I mean, this guy is awesome. This is the kind of guy I want to be a part of my church, right? I mean, he's got everything going for him. You know, he seems hungry and, and earnest. He asks good, insightful questions. He's, he's good. He's, he's moral. He's upright. I want him to be part of my church. And no doubt the disciples were like, hey, well, I want that guy on my side. Right? I mean, he's really going to be able to advance our cause. We want him. Come on, let's bring him in. But, you see, there's a problem. And it comes out in his question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? See, he wants assurance of his standing before God, but he wants it based upon his own efforts, based upon his own achievements. He's trusting in himself. And so Jesus gives him a little test. Verse 18, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I mean, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. 
Jesus challenges this man's concept of what is good by drawing him back to the character of God. No one is good but God alone. The Bible describes God as perfectly good, as perfectly righteous, as perfectly holy, as perfectly just. He does not sin. He cannot sin. He can have nothing to do with sin. Our understanding of what is good, our understanding of what is perfect, our understanding of what is holy and righteous and just all comes from Him. He is the standard of that. Right? We just have just vague notions of the concept. God is the reality of it. Okay? And he says, only God is good like that. Only God is good. Now, we often think that we are basically good, and so when we think about eternal life, we just need a little help, you know? We just need a a list of a few more do's and don'ts that we need to follow so that we can enter the the kingdom of God on our own, right? That's, That's really what this guy's asking for. Hey, just need a couple more steps to make sure I'm okay. Right? I understand that I'm basically good. I've, I've kept the commands. You know, I've done all this stuff for my youth. I'm okay. But if you desire eternal life, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be good the way that God is good. Not in comparing yourself to the person next to you or to Adolf Hitler or whatever the case is. You can't compare yourself to man. You have to compare yourself to God. That's the standard that God puts forward. That's the kind of goodness that he can accept, the kind of goodness, the righteousness, the the justice, the holiness that he can receive. And there's the issue. None of us are. Not one of us. Jesus perceives that this man thinks that he's basically good enough to get to God. He just needs a little boost from Jesus. That's what he's looking for. And so Jesus lists off commandments that pertain to loving your neighbor as yourself. Right? You see... You see most of them mentioned there. Um, defraud, which is not a commandment, is probably a combination of the 8th, ninth, and 10th commandments. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not covet. Because the whole purpose behind defrauding is that you want what someone else has, right? So you're willing to lie, cheat, and steal to get it. Um, this rich man says that he's faithfully kept them from his youth. Now maybe he has com- kept these commands, but honestly I doubt it. Right? He might have kept the general letter of the law, but he's missing the heart behind it. Right? And if you look deeply enough, you would see that, no, I actually did lie. I actually did covet. I actually didn't honor my father and mother. Interestingly enough, did you notice that Jesus didn't make mention of the first four commandments? Those that deal with loving God before all, right? Instead, Jesus responds in verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing, right? Go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Jesus looks deeply at this man. He gazes deeply, and and his gaze penetrates the soul of this man. He sees what's really there. And he challenges him with a personal application of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You see, this man loved his wealth. He loved his possessions. He loved his status. He loved his power. He trusted them. He depended on them. He hoped in them. He served them. He spoke of them. He sacrificed for them. In in all his religious 
pursuits, this man never once had to trust in God. He could always trust in himself. And so though he did these good and moral deeds and he performed religious ritual time after time after time after time, he was never once trusting in God, but in himself, in his possessions, in his status, in his power. His possessions became his functional God. And so Jesus challenged him to remove them, to have no other gods before him. Now, this is not a command to all um, that would follow Christ, that they must sell everything, give it to the poor, and, and follow Jesus. That's, that's not, this is hyperbole, right? We've seen it throughout this section, just like you don't deal with sin by cutting your hand off, or by cutting your foot off, or plucking your eye out, right? We learn from origin that that's not going to work, and, or biblically we learn from God, that, that, or from Christ, that, that sin comes from the heart, Right? This is not an exterior kind of thing. And so we don't literally cut our hands off. Instead, we deal seriously with our sin. And that's the same thing happening here. Jesus is challenging this man, using hyperbole, to really get at the idol that's in his heart. And we see throughout Scripture that this is purely volitional. you got Zacchaeus as an example. Who Zacchaeus, though he was never commanded anything, willingly, openly said, hey, I'll give up half of all that I have. Right? You've got uh, Ananias and Sapphira. They've got this land, they decide to sell it, they keep back a portion for themselves, but the problem was that they told them that they gave everything, right? And Peter's response was, hey, while it was in your possession, that was fine, it's yours, you're free to keep it. But you, they, were, they were killed by the Holy Spirit because they lied and said that this was all when it wasn't, that that was the real issue behind it. And furthermore, in, in the New Testament, you see over and over again that there continued to be rich people. For example, 1 Timothy 6 uh, rich people are called not to set their hope in the uncertainty of riches, but on God, and to use their God-given resources generously to help others. They were to use their God-given resources for God's glory. That's really what matters. Not the fact that they're wealthier, they have to, to assign themselves to abject poverty. No, what Jesus is doing here is providing this man with an application of Mark eight thirty four. If anyone is to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Right? For this man to deny himself meant to deny his possessions, to deny his status, to deny finding his worth in that achieved or ascribed status that he had been given, but to humble himself before the Lord, to use all that he had for God. Now, most of you here, you know, abject, you know, like you, none of you are independently wealthy, right? Is anyone here independently wealthy? And so the, the temptation is to just kind of turn around and say, well, this doesn't apply to me. I'm barely making it. But you know what? You have plenty of God-given resources, right? Your time, your energy, right? All sorts of things that God has given you. You, you have stuff that people around the world don't even dream of, right? And all of those are God-given to be used for His glory. That's really what matters. It's not what you do without. This, this text is not what you do without, but what you do with what you have. Okay? It's what you do with what you have. Especially the gospel. So don't look at this and think that you're off the hook because you're not rich. All right? Everything that you have is a gift to be uh, from the Lord and it's to be used for Him. And this is a, is a radical call. I'm not denying this. Don't, don't dismiss the radical nature of this call and what this means. God is demanding everything from you. 
Jesus is calling you, and He's calling all of you, to lay all of that down, all that you define yourself with, and follow Him. All right? This is radical. Whether you have two cents to your name or you have two billion dollars, it doesn't matter. Everything in between, you're not off the hook. Beware of the power of money and status to separate you from God. Christians are to be rich in good deeds. This rich young ruler was dependent upon his status and wealth, and so he left sorrowful, not following Jesus. Verse 22 says that he was disheartened by the saying, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I mean, this man who in verse 17 was so eager, so hungry, so zealous, willing to be made the fool, falling down on his knees before Jesus, begging the question, is now leaving sorrowful, disheartened, because he was not willing to give up his possessions. Now, whoa, whoa, wait. Wait a minute. You see what this is saying to us? This guy has everything, right? Wealth. He's got power. He's young. He's got the whole world before him. And yet he's miserable. He's sad. He's disheartened. Friends, do not believe the lie of this world that that status and achievement and wealth can satisfy you, can bring you and fulfill you and make you happy, give everything that you ever wanted. It is a lie from Satan. It is not true. This man is evidence of that. He has everything, and yet he is miserable. Absolutely miserable. Though he knows that he was created in the image of God, And that his single greatest need was to inherit eternal life. When put to the test, he walked away because he loved his position, his possessions and status more than he loved God. At the end of the day, that was it. Rather than making him free, making him happy, giving him fulfillment, his possessions possessed him. And that's what they do. He was enslaved to a God that cannot satisfy his soul but one that he has depended upon for so long that he could not walk away from it to follow God. Now, we need to love this man. We need to have pity on this man. He knew how to trust in his riches. He knew how to trust in in himself, in his status, in his works, in his achievements, in his abilities, but he never trusted God. Friends, Be aware of the danger of amassing possessions, whether it be money or houses or land or family or securities or comforts or indulgences or entertainments. All of it. We are to find our hope. We are to find our comfort. We are to find our security in one thing, and that is Jesus Christ and in Him alone. In verse 23 and 24, twice Jesus says, How difficult is it for for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? In verse 25, he adds, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, now, this this camel through the eye of the needle thing, right? Now, some preachers and teachers have have, have the unfortunate... uh, I don't know, opportunity, I don't know what you call it. They've just made a mess of this passage, okay? Uh, how many of you have heard of the eye of the needle being some low gate in the wall of Jerusalem? Anybody? Somebody preached on that? In order for the camel to go through the gate, you have to unload it. The camel has to get down on its knees and kind of 
waddle through, which I don't even know if a camel can do that, and, and then get through and you load the, the camel back up and you keep on your way, right? Has anybody heard that? Yeah, I think so, right? It's, I'm sorry, that's just not true. Now, there is a gate in the wall of Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle, but it was erected in the ninth century, not in Jesus' time. That gate is non-existent. And it was called that because of this passage. Okay? That's why it was given this name. Right? Now, the other one, the other misinterpretation of this is that some people say that uh, camel is a mistranslation, that it's actually rope. Like, how difficult is it for a rope to go through the eye of the needle? Right? Okay? Well, how difficult is it to believe such a notion when there's no textual support anywhere for such an idea? All right? There is never a textual variant, not, not one, in all the 5,000 plus manuscripts that we have where, where camel is replaced with rope. Okay? So this is just a false notion. It's not the case. And they do this, they're well-meaning guys, but they're trying to take it easy on the rich folks. You know, just kind of like, you know, because, I mean, this is harsh, right? The idea of, like, it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. We're just like, well, what do you do? You know? And so they're just trying to, well-meaning guys trying to, trying, trying to make it a little bit light. But, again, this is a radical call, and no one's off the hook. Because if you look on in verse 27... The reality is it's impossible for everyone. All right? Jesus, what Jesus is doing here is using the largest living animal available in Palestinian culture. You know, I'm sorry, elephants weren't there. Camels. And the smallest opening available that's commonplace that they know of, an eye of the needle, to just highlight the impossibility of not just the rich, but anyone entering the kingdom of God on their own. And we'll get to that in a minute. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Okay? So if you're trusting in anything that you have more than God, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. All right? Rather than receiving it as a child, this rich young ruler is looking to himself. He's looking to his possessions. He's looking to his status. <clears throat> now, we can learn a lot about ourselves in this man. Okay? I don't want you to just kind of dismiss it because you're not rich. You're not, like you're not in this kind of position. You may not be independently wealthy, but again, according to culture standards, you are. Even all of you all are wealthy. Okay? But beside that, you know, my biggest fear of myself and for you guys when I come to this text is what I see in this man, someone who is outwardly very very zealous for Christ. He runs to Him. He humbles Himself. He gets down on His knees and He begs Jesus the question. He's a moral, upright man. He's a religious man. He's faithfully performing His duty every single day. He's coming time and time again. And on the outside, He looks like He has it all together. He, he's having emotional worship experiences. He is zealous. He is hungry. He is passionate. He is religious. He is doing it all. But on the inside, He is harboring idols that are killing His soul. And they go neglected. And my biggest fear is that is what's going to be said of you and of me. That we are not going to be called out on these idols that exist in our hearts and will go through life coming to church on Sundays. We're having all these emotional experiences. We'll experience passion. We'll have an earnestness for Jesus. And all the while, we are loving this stuff that has our hearts more than God does. 
That's my fear for every one of you. That's my fear for myself. I do not want that to be the case. Christ does not want that to be the case. Do not neglect this. We love and cherish our idols, but if pressed by circumstances, if pressed by loss, if pressed by suffering or by pain or by risky and dangerous situations or by the call of Christ, we might turn from God and we might run clinging and cursing to our idols. I do not want that to be the case for us. It is not enough to trust in God's earthly gifts or in your own efforts. Jesus will not take a both and. Right? It's not Jesus and your idols. It's Jesus or your idols. It is always an either or. Either you will love Him or you will love your idol. But you cannot love and serve both. And so do not be neglected. Each of you here potentially is that rich young ruler. Because we have to lay it down. We cannot trust in your idols, your earthly possessions, whatever they are. So, just like last week, my first point was really, really long. My next two are going to come much quicker, okay? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, do not trust in earthly possessions. Second, nor in the act of giving them up. And you see this in the response of the disciples, okay? Now, when Jesus speaks in verses 23 and 24 of the impossibility of the wealthy to inherit the kingdom of God, you, you see the disciples in verse 24, and they're amazed. And then it, it, it even goes farther in verse 26 that they are exceedingly astonished. Right? They don't even know what to think. I mean, why are they so surprised by this? That's, that's the thing that I can't really figure out. Well, first of all, I mean, they saw this, this young man who was zealous who was law-abiding, who was good, who was religious, who was upright, who was rich, had it all together, and Jesus rejects the dude. You know, from their standards, they're like, this guy should be in. He should be there. He should receive the kingdom of God. Look at his faithfulness. But they were also shocked by Jesus' response. Wait, wait, you are asking him to give up everything? All his possessions, all that stuff? That God has given him to follow you? Wait, wait. Aren't, aren't riches, aren't wealth, isn't prosperity a sign of God's blessing? You see, in that day, there was a tradition that believed if you were good, if you were upright, if you were moral, if you were religious, if you were obedient, then God would bless you. God would make you prosperous. Right? And if you weren't, then God would punish you. He would take it away. You see this, this being dealt with in the Old Testament. Read Job, right? Look at the life of David or the life of Abraham and see people wrestling with that. Read Psalm 73 and how, how Asaph has to wrestle with the fact that the wicked prosper. See, this idea, this simple mindset, this retributive principle as it's called, uh, it can explain how, how it is that the wicked can prosper or why it is that sometimes the righteous don't prosper. It doesn't explain that at all. It's too simple. But they, to them, they, they saw it as wealth as an indication of God's blessing, that health was a sign of God's approval, that prosperity was evidence of God's favor, or so they thought. And so in great dismay, they asked the question, well, who can be saved? If this guy can't make it in, after all that he's done, after, after his zeal, after his, his, his efforts, after his achievement and who he is, he can't get in. Then what hope is there for me? 
That's the motivation behind the question. But Jesus says in verse 27, he looked at them and he said, what is impo- with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Now notice here, he doesn't say with the rich man it is impossible. He says with man it is impossible. No one is saved by their possessions, by their status, by their achievements, or by their obedience to the law. It is impossible. Man cannot save himself. He cannot. But their their question indicates confusion in their own hearts. They too are trusting in their personal achievements rather than God's grace. They're still thinking in terms of what I must do to inherit the kingdom of God. This is made clear in Peter's ignorant and impetuous statements. I mean, you got to love this guy, right? You know, Peter's always trying. He never really gives up. And I kind of got this image of of Peter, you know, like he's been rebuked so many times before that he's kind of like, he just kind of jumps in there and says something, and then he kind of ducks, you know, waiting for Jesus to kind of, you know, smack him. But, and so he asks this question, or or makes this statement in verse 28. See, we've left everything to follow you. Well, hey, I I I got one up on this guy. Yeah, there's hope for us. Look at what we did. We, we got up, we left everything immediately. We followed you, Jesus. That's got to count for something, right? Look at what we did. We gave it all up. We did it. We worked. We provided this effort. So give us the kingdom. See what he's getting at here. Look at what I did. Acknowledge me for my accomplishments. Give me what I'm due. It's amazing to me that Jesus doesn't scold him here. Because he deserves it. His mentality is all wrong. He's still trusting in his personal achievements. He's still trusting in his works, in his own efforts to inherit the kingdom of God. But Jesus doesn't rebuke him because, and here's why I think why. It's because this is an indication that they do value Jesus more than they value wealth and prosperity and family and all the like. Their allegiance still is more with Jesus than it is with these other things. And so Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Though not as severe as the rich young ruler, neither he nor the disciples are willing at this point to dependently receive the kingdom of God like a child. They're actually set in opposition to what we saw last week, the attitude that we are to have in verses 13 through 16, that we are to receive the kingdom of God like a child. This is not something that we do. It's not based upon our status or what we have or what we can gain God in our actions, but we receive it freely, dependently, like a child. They're getting it, but they don't have it yet. Now, the answer is not to give up all your possessions. Right? That's not the answer. That's not the solution. Like, you have to take this vow of poverty Right? And, and give all you have, and that, that Christ's ultimate goal is to rid the world of poverty, and we kind of have to do this sort, whole, sort of communistic sacrifice of all who would call themselves Christians, you know, and just do that. That's not what Jesus is calling them to. Jesus also tells us that the poor will always be with us. Always. And he does that as a means of challenging the idols of the rich. You know that, right? Because there will always be rich and there will always be poor. It's interesting. I uh, I didn't take very good notes because I wasn't going to talk about it. But um, I saw somewhere that 
you know, when Lyndon Baines uh, Johnson uh, became president, before, before him there wasn't too many social welfare reform programs in place, but during his presidency he established all these. He, they saw that the, the poverty rate in America was 18%. This is too high, so they went and they spent billions of dollars. They, they enacted all these laws to try to combat the poverty issue. They went back and they explored it 15 years later. After all of the policies, all the procedures were put in place, millions and billions of dollars were spent on this effort. You guess what the poverty rate was? 18%. Didn't change a thing. The poor will always be with us. That doesn't mean that we don't have a an obligation to, at times, lay down, be very sacrificial. We need to be sacrificial with what we've been given to help the poor. That's not what I'm saying here. But the answer is not abject poverty. You have to take a vow, kind of take on this ascetic lifestyle, you know, kind of go stand on a pillar by yourself, you know, remove yourself, just deny yourself everything. Because these are God's gifts to us to be used for His glory. And we need to think about how we can do that. For his sake and for the gospel's sake, we are willing to lay down every idol. That's what he's getting at. Everything that we find our identity in, if we might gain Christ. And you can see that in Jesus' response to Peter in in verse 29 and following. So truly I say to you that there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, Jesus is not speaking of material investment. Like, okay, if you invest in me by giving up the one house you have, I'll guarantee you that you will gain 100 houses. Right? It's not, he's not saying, hey, he's not, he's not kind of appealing to their materialism here as if to say, if you give to me now, you know, just, just give it up now. If you invest yourself in me right now by giving up your house, by giving up your lands, by giving up your, all your family, you will get 100 times in this life with persecutions. You know, that's not what he's saying. Okay? So get that out of your head, right? That's still a prosperity gospel mindset. If that were the case, you would think that somewhere we would read about all, you know, the hundred wives, the hundred houses, and all that stuff that Peter had or the other disciples because they clearly gave up everything, right? But you don't read that. Now, clearly he means something else. Jesus is saying that giving up these things, give up the things that you cannot keep to gain that which you can never lose. That's what he's saying. Trade in the temporary for what is eternal. Give over earthly gifts to be used by me and for me and receive me and the gospel. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's not highlighting a, a sense of delayed gratification. Like, okay, you just have to grit your teeth and bear it. You give up everything and you just tough it out until you receive eternal life. And there's the hundredfold in that day. In the future, it's all delayed gratification. You just gotta, you gotta deal with it now. You know, following Christ, it will mean rejection and disownment and hostility and loss. And it's really interesting that when Jesus talks about persecution, most often he talks about it coming from loved ones. He talks about it coming from those that you give up, right? Brother against brother, father against child, children against their parents. It's amazing how often you see that. 
And you see that here as well. Loved ones will reject you, but through, but, but through the church, you will gain more than what you ever gave up. Houses, brothers, sisters, mother, children, and lands. Friends, he's talking about the church here. That hundredfold you gain in this time is what you gain when you are united in Christ. That's what he's referring to. Now I wonder, how do you view the church? I mean, really. Is it essential? Do you see it as the kind of blessing that Christ presents it here? Or not? If not, it's probably because you don't see your need of it. Honestly, you don't. You think, I got this. Me and Jesus, that's it. Rich young ruler said the same thing. Disciples saying the same thing. They're wrong. They don't get it yet. If you're trusting in your own wealth, in your own possessions, in your own position and status and the relationships that you already have, you're not going to see your need of Christ. You're not going to see your need of His body, His church. And if you haven't experienced hostility and persecution, you're not going to see your need of it. Man, God uses persecution to kind of force us to be dependent upon one another in amazing ways. And it really draws those idols, those hidden idols to the surface. I mean, are you willing to follow Christ when, when your comfort and your security and your safety are being challenged? Really? Honestly? Or are you going to be like the seed that lands on the rocky soil that initially springs forth and, and seems really excited, but then as soon as hardship and trial and suffering occurs, it wilts? It's really only then that the church is seen for the beautiful, essential gift that it is. And let me tell you, folks, it took me 30 years and a plane trip across half the world to really discover this, to really understand what Jesus is talking about here. It was the first time I went to India. And for the first time I met somebody, I met people who really, really suffered for their faith, who had lost jobs who had been ostracized by their family, who had been beaten, who had been spent time in prison. You know, I, I met one lady, and, and it turns out she, she was killed by her family shortly after we left this last time. I mean, it's serious. This is serious stuff. It was there that I, kind of, I, I learned to see what it looked like for people of, of varying ages, of very different backgrounds, of different tribes that normally would not talk to one another, now coming together as brother and sister in Christ and loving one another and caring for one another and supporting one another and, and just being there for one another. It was there for the first time I really kind of experienced what it meant to felt like, feel like part of the multinational family of God when they, though they could not speak my language, embraced me as a brother. I felt love like, like I've rarely felt in a church. And it was over there. And the funny thing is, I went over there to serve them, to help them. And you know what? They end up serving me. Because I caught a vision of the beauty of the body of Christ in the midst of persecution. It is invaluable. Friends, this is not about you sucking it up and sacrificing for Jesus. Okay? This is not about the hardships that you are going to have to endure if you are going to follow Jesus. This is not a call to give up all, all you have and deny every good gift of God and grit your teeth until you die and are martyred as if Jesus. this is the only way for you to receive eternal life. No, Jesus says the whole thing, the whole thing, 
Persecutions included is a blessing from the Lord. You don't sacrifice anything you gain. It's all gain. Everything, a hundredfold, even with persecutions, it's gain. Because you see the value in what he's doing. It's amazing. In reality, you gain. This is no sacrifice at all, as David Livingstone said. I made no sacrifice. And this leads to the third point. Do not trust in earthly possessions, nor in the act of giving them up. But third, receive Christ as your possession. Right, over and over and over again, this passage points us back to our need of Christ. You see it in Jesus' initial question in verse, 20, uh, verse 18. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Here Jesus is graciously drawing out the fact that we are sinful. That we are completely unable to stand before a perfectly good, holy, and righteous God who creates us and who sustains us. A God that we have rebelled against. A God that we have tried to live without. And only look to Him when we really need assurance that we will inherit eternal life. But even in this, it's important to note that the man is right in calling Jesus good. He's good because He's the Son of God. Jesus is unlike every other human that ever existed on the planet. Not because he's just basically good or he's basically morally upright, but that Jesus is perfectly good. He's good the way that God is good. He's holy the way that God is holy. He alone is good and alone because he is God's son. If we are to be restored to God to truly be good, then we need Jesus. In this passage, you see also the love of Jesus. It's expressed in verse 21 as he looks deeply into this man's heart. Friends, he sees the man's idols. And what does Jesus do? He loves him. And he loves him enough to tell him the gospel truth. He loves him enough to point him to, to the reality. He loves him enough to tell him about his idols. To challenge them. To pursue goodness in Christ. And He's going to do the same thing for us. He, he, he's going to love you and He's going to call you to the truth because He wants you to be a child of God, to humbly and dependently receive the kingdom of God like a child. But you have to give up the vain pursuit of trying to earn eternal life through position or through status or through your works. That's not what's going to get you there. Remember, Jesus answered the disciples' question in verse 27. Who then can be saved? With man it is impossible, but not with God. With God all things are possible. The only way that you're going to be saved is because God makes it possible. There's nothing that you can do to earn your way to God. You are not born into it. You cannot achieve it through emotion. You cannot achieve it through passion or through your efforts, through your diligence, through your religious observance. That is impossible. You can only, by the grace of God, who alone makes it possible, receive by letting go of the idols of this world and receiving Christ. You inherit eternal life. That is an impossibility. 
apart from the work of God the Father. This is the same as, as it's impossible for the father of the, man, the boy with the demon in, in chapter 9, verse 21, is impossible for him to heal his son. So it is impossible for you to inherit eternal life. It's the same concept there. Salvation is a work of God's grace to be received by faith. And so we, just like that father, cry out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And as God's grace works within us, we find ourselves willing to let go of wealth and position and possessions and, and the things that we love, the things that we own. We're willing to lay down status and self-exaltation. We're, we're willing to let go of homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children because we recognize that Christ is more. That Christ is gain. We do it for His sake and for the Gospels. Or as He says in Mark 8, 34-38, Whoever would save His life will lose it, but whoever loses His life for My sake and for the Gospels will save it. We're willing to let go of life and all because we recognize that Jesus is worth more. He is eternal life. He is our treasure in heaven. He is how we receive the kingdom of God. He is how we are saved. It's like the, the treasure buried in the field. You're willing to sell all that you have to receive that because it's gain. It's not about what you give up. It's about what you gain. He is the pearl of great price. And so we are willing to become last of all. As he says in verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. We will deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. As he says in 8.34, we will become last of all as a servant of all in 9.35 and a slave to all in 10.44. But this is more than just a description of the mindset that Jesus' disciples are to have. It's really a description of Jesus. Jesus was the one who became last of all and a slave to all. Jesus served. Jesus literally denied himself, took up his cross, and followed God. Jesus loved us so much that He died a gruesome, humiliating death that He did not deserve and that you did to sacrifice Himself for you on your behalf to overcome your rebellion, your sin against God, your, your idolatry of trying to live for yourself and, and inherit some sort of kingdom, scratch out some kingdom for yourself. He died for that so that you might receive a kingdom that is imperishable. One that does satisfy your soul. But you have to be willing to follow it. Though he owns everything, he humbled himself to the point of death to purchase a people for himself, to redeem them from their idolatry, from their self-pursuits, to become children of the living God. Friends, this is no sacrifice to follow Christ. What you gain far outweighs the cost. And so, Jesus says, listen, there's an age to come. You got this time now, but there is a day when things are radically going to change. He's going to come back. And we're going to have to deal with what we love, what ultimately matters, what the idols really are in our life. This world is not all this that there is. What you have will soon be gone. You will part with your possessions one day. You cannot keep them. There are no U-Hauls that follow behind hearses. You realize this. So how you spend 
Your time, your money, your resources indicate the idols of your heart. And let me ask you, what are you giving yourself for? What is it? What are you spending yourself on? What is it that possesses you? What is it that has enslaved you? You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Any master other than God is going to use you up. It is going to possess you. It is going to own you. It is going to enslave you. And there will be no freedom. There will be no satisfaction. Only an insatiable lust that continues forever. You will not reach enough. There is no such thing as enough in this life. Jesus alone is your salvation. He is the hope. He is enough. The question is, will you receive Him as your possession? Let's pray. Father, I pray that that your spirit would be at work in our hearts to cause this truth to sink deeply in us. God, do not let us be people who come here and perform our religious duty and think that we have accomplished something, even if we've experienced uh, emotional levity, even if we we seem... uh, on the exterior, passionate about you. God, I pray that you would be confronting the idols in our hearts to help us to realize what is it that really possesses us. And that we would lay those at your feet and receive you as a possession. God, I pray you don't let us walk out of here and just forget and go right back to worshiping our idols, which we so often do. But that we would see the great value and beauty and truth of Christ. That we would let go of what we cannot keep to gain that which we can never lose. It's in His name we pray. Amen.